0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Bad Philosopher podcast. I'm your host, Dan Levesque. And since this is our inaugural podcast episode, I figured it makes a little bit of sense to do some housekeeping before we continue. So, for the past couple of weeks, I've been working on the Bad Philosopher website, setting up a Patreon page, um, setting up some paid membership subscription options through our website. And my intention with this project is to build the best philosophy, podcast, website, and eventually community on the internet. So four weeks ago today, as of the day of recording this, I left my conventional 9 to 5 job to go all in on creating this podcast, website, community based around philosophy. I'm really fortunate to be in a position where I have enough savings and a supportive spouse where I can take this on, on a full-time basis. This is a years-long dream that I've been thinking about since probably around 2016, so going on five years now. Um, I've always in the past done a fair amount of blogging about various topics. My first serious attempt at a sort of non-personal blog was um, blogging about science and technology sort of topics. From there, that sort of evolved into blogging more about um, like space exploration and space colonization, things like that. And eventually, I pivoted that even further to start blogging and writing about existential risks and the long-term future of humanity as a whole. Around the time I got into the existential risk side of things, I started thinking more seriously about starting to blog and write about philosophy. This is something that really intimidated me for quite a long time. I mean, how does someone start creating content on philosophy where there's so much depth and complexity in a lot of these topics? So for a long time, I just sort of sat back and developed this idea. Um, when I came up with Bad Philosopher, my conventional career was sort of taking off and taking up a lot of mental energy at the time. I had been part-time blogging on the side for quite a while, but um, as I just got deeper into my career and there was a lot of more mental work going on there. I just became less and less able or willing to go home and sit in front of the laptop and start trying to write out paragraphs about anything complicated, especially when it comes to philosophy. So even while I wasn't doing any blogging, I I probably stopped blogging seriously sometime around 2017. um, I briefly picked it up again in 2019, trying to take it semi-seriously, but as I was taking on higher roles in my career, it just became less and less feasible for a variety of reasons. So just to go into a little bit of background career-wise, I've been working in the public sector for over five years now, um, mainly in our provincial government. So in my most recent role, I was actually a business analyst with the Ministry of Finance, and I was in that role for a little more than two years. And that's the role where things really started to take a turn in terms of complexity. I was dealing with a lot of system and technical issues and um, thinking of ways to improve business processes. I won't go into too much detail, maybe save it for another time, but I did have some some plans to leave my job sooner than I did um, and start doing this Bad Philosopher project. And then COVID sort of happened. That threw a bit of a wrench in things for various reasons. But almost two years later, here we are now. I'm finally starting this project, this podcast, creating this content and creating this community that I'm super excited about. So I do wanna be fairly transparent about where things are at for me um, with this project. I did decide to leave my conventional nine to five job that paid the bills to take this on on a full-time basis. It wasn't really something I could feasibly do part-time while I was also working in that capacity. Fortunately, I'm in a position where I have enough savings that I can bootstrap this project And I'm also super lucky to have a very supportive spouse that believes in me and this project. Um, And she is fully willing for me to take this on. Probably make next to no money for the next who knows how long. But realistically, that can't go on forever. I do eventually need to make some sort of a livable wage with this project, I am hoping that by the end of 2022, I've got enough support in the form of patrons and paid memberships through the website that I can continue doing this on a full time basis for an indefinite period of time. Um, As of now, I'm planning on doing some quarterly updates on the sort of livable wage side of things to give listeners an idea of where we're at with this and how potentially sustainable this project's going to be going forward. I'm definitely not expecting for this to be a huge financial success. Um, especially in the short term. And I'm not expecting to be making the same wage I was making with my full-time career in the past. This is a transition period, it's a big risk, but I think and I believe that it's something that's very needed in our modern society. I think in society right now we have fewer and fewer places where we can have safe discourse about important topics. And by safe discourse I just mean... The ability to have reasonable dialogues and disagreeing with one another, but doing so respectfully, respecting other people's opinions, respecting diverse points of view, and not holding so closely to our opinions about the way things are or the way things should be. This current charged atmosphere we have, particularly online with a lot of these issues, is to me just so anti-philosophy. The spirit of philosophy is to be able to have discourse without judgment, to be able to question everything, to be able to ask questions, to share opinions with each other and not be chastised online for what we think of something or for what we might have said. So this is where the community aspect comes in for me with this project, with Bad Philosopher. I'm creating this podcast. Um, I intend to create written content as well and additional content in the future of different mediums. I also want to be creating this community where we can have dialogues and be respectful to one another, have divergent opinions, and be able to discuss things openly and honestly without having shouting matches and trying to cancel one another. At the same time, I'm hoping to create some philosophy content that's accessible to people and brings discourse on some of these topics into public view. I want people to get a better understanding of what philosophy is. To me, philosophy is not just the historical study of who said what and who thought what and arguments for and against certain opinions and the systemization of different ways of thinking. To me, there's a much richer history than that, and it's the history of free thinking and critical thinking. But more than that, I think it's the history of sharing wisdom with one another. I mean, this is something humans have probably been doing for... Hundreds of thousands of years at least is sharing wisdom with one another, passing it down through the generations, and having open and honest discussions wherever possible. So with all that said, I just want to touch briefly on a couple of different ways you can support Bad Philosopher and support me on this endeavor. So I have set up a patron page. Um, I've got quite a few tiers on there, and each tier, depending on your level of support, has different perks that go with that. I've also set up a paid subscription model through my website at badphilosopher.com. So with the website, we have less membership tiers compared to what we have with Patreon, but all the same perks you can get through Patreon, you can also get if you sign up through our website and for a better price. So with with Patreon, we have um, different tiers in about $5 increments, and then it sort of starts to increase from there. With our website, you can get some of those same perks on Patreon for a lower price. And I'm doing this for a couple of different reasons. First of all, I don't want to put all of my eggs in one basket with Patreon. Patreon is a platform that I personally cannot control. And if at any point Patreon goes away, we still have a subscription option through the website that can never be taken away. So the other part of this is that while Patreon is a pretty cool platform and they have a lot of awesome features, They do take a decent chunk of revenue from creators. So whatever your subscription tier would be on Patreon, I would not be getting 100% of that. Patreon takes a portion of that for themselves as a fee. With the subscription model I have on the website, um, payments are handled through Stripe, which is a payment processing company. They take a smaller transaction fee, so I get to keep a larger portion of whatever your subscription is if you sign up through the website versus signing up through Patreon. And as a bit of a bonus, so anyone listening to this, you're probably a bit of an early adopter here, Um, on the website, the subscription tiers that I've set up, you actually get a much better deal than through Patreon. So you can get the same perks you can get on Patreon, but for a lower price, depending on which tier you go for, and you also get the option to get a discount if you pay for a yearly subscription to the website, as opposed to paying monthly. So all things considered I am giving a better deal through website subscriptions and if you sign up you can lock in that lower price that is definitely subject to change or be increased um, to match Patreon in the future depending on how things go but feel free to subscribe by whichever means works for you. So all that said I don't want to spend too much time talking about memberships and monetization. Um, I don't really expect anyone listening to this first episode of the Bad Philosopher podcast to jump onto the website or Patreon and become a paying member or a patron. I just don't have enough content out just yet and I haven't proved my mettle. So I think as we get deeper into this and start pumping out some more episodes and more consistent content, that's maybe when I'll start talking a little bit more about memberships and subscriptions and asking people if they're able to subscribe or support us in some way. And like I said, I do also plan to give some sort of quarterly updates on where things are at in terms of funding and reaching that sort of livable wage goal that I'm really hoping to achieve by the end of this coming year. So I think it's about time we jump into some actual philosophizing. I myself am not perfect, though I am a perfectionist, which is what makes talking about philosophy so intimidating for me. Since this is the first podcast episode, I figured it would make some sense to go into the history of how I got into philosophy in the first place. I'm sure everyone has their own stories about how they first encountered philosophy, or maybe if you encountered it at a young enough age, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't remember. Maybe it's just something you've always sort of had in your life. For me, that definitely wasn't the case. I could start off saying that ever since I was a young boy, I always wanted to be a philosopher. Well, to be fair, I didn't know what a philosopher was back then, nor had I ever heard the term philosophy as far as I can recall. But early on, as a young kid, I definitely had philosophical thoughts, and those are probably some of my earliest memories. For example, when I was pretty young, I recall wondering to myself if other people are real or not. Not in the sense of, are other people just illusions or part of my mind, but more, are these people experiencing the same consciousness that I do? Are my parents experiencing their own form of consciousness, but from a different perspective? Is my crying younger brother some automaton, or is he some conscious being that's crying for a valid reason? So at this stage, I was sort of just questioning, what's going on here? Like, what is this perspective that I have? Are other people seeing different things from their perspective, from behind their own eyes? But what I remember most was the way I approached this. So I never asked anyone if they were real people or not, if they were conscious beings with their own unique experiences. This is something that I wanted to figure out by myself. I wanted to observe and figure out for myself what was actually going on. I remember that when my younger brother would cry or have a tantrum or something, being the older brother that I am, it could be sometimes annoying. But I also had this side of me that was being more compassionate where I was thinking like, Is this kid just being annoying and ruining my time watching TV or whatever cartoon show I was watching? Or is he an actual conscious being with his own experience and he's going through some sort of distress or something like that? So this presented a way for me to shift my annoyance into a sort of compassion for another being who I could recognize as another being. When I started playing video games, I also started wondering whether whether everything going on around me was playing out like a video game. Were all of the people in my life video game characters? Was my mom the end boss? Was my brother just another obstacle to overcome in my quest to win the game? I eventually sorted out in my own head that for the same amount of thoughts and wants that I had, every other individual that I encountered had a similar level of thoughts and wants, just that theirs were different than mine. I learned that, by observing other people, I could try and see things from their perspective. I even tried this with the family dog, and I feel like I got a new sense of understanding just by looking into her eyes and imagining what she was feeling and thinking at any given moment. Definitely, I would say the thoughts of a dog were a lot simpler to understand than a, another human being, but it definitely was an interesting exercise and gave me these different perspectives, a way of seeing things through others' eyes. I don't think there's anything truly spectacular about this. I'd guess most children go through similar mental processes of working things out for themselves. I'm sure some people will go about it differently than others and maybe we don't all remember exactly how we first had these thoughts or first sort of figured these things out. But I definitely do think that at some fundamental level, all children are mini philosophers going through the world and experiencing it all for the first time, having deep thoughts and trying to understand how things work. Maybe they don't all have the tools they need to really express these things and these experiences, but I'm sure the basic inner workings must be there for everyone. I also remember having some early intuitions about the nature of reality itself. I think I got this early, either from video games or VHS tapes where you could pause and rewind and all of that. My thought was, what if this whole world we're in right now is just a movie? Sort of like the are other people conscious beings question, Only this time I thought, what if we're all stuck in some sort of movie where they can press pause at any moment and it sticks us all in time? And then what if from there they can rewind that movie or fast forward that movie or hit play at any moment? Or what if they can continually replay the same movie over and over again for all of eternity? Maybe there's a little bit of a hint there for the Nietzsche that's to come. So my thought here as a young kid experiencing reality and thinking metaphysical thoughts for the first time is, maybe that was God or something. Maybe God is playing this VHS tape. Maybe whoever's playing this VHS tape of our lives can pause this at any moment, and it'll just freeze us in place. Hell, maybe they could pause the tape, walk away for 10,000 years, come back, press play again, and we'd continue on exactly where we left off without skipping a beat, never knowing that we'd been on pause for 10,000 years. Inside that VHS tape that had been on pause, we'd have no idea that the person had pressed pause for 10,000 years, walked away, and came back later. Because our reality was completely frozen in place, for all we know, this could be happening constantly. The other thought I had here, and maybe I got this from the neighbors or something because they were religious, um, was that maybe every fleeting moment of time is being painted on a canvas by some god or something. I didn't really have an intuition about what God was exactly. I thought of maybe some person floating up in the clouds, observing our daily lives, and having absolute power like you playing a video game or something. But I guess the thought here was that maybe for every instant of time that something happens, every single one of those instances is this God figure painting a brand new canvas and putting everything where it needs to be from one moment to the next. If you break this down, our experience of a couple of minutes or a couple of seconds of time could be. Thousands of years of work for some god, as an artist, to paint or put together, with the ultimate goal of this god figure to be putting together every minute detail and making every little thing perfect and just the way it should be. And maybe that's how we experience reality. As any kid would, I think I eventually got bored with this idea and basically just moved on to whatever else I was doing. But this is an example of the kind of things I recall thinking about as a kid, and I would love to hear if other people listening to this had similar experiences. Another thing I was really into as a kid was writing. and This is something I was super shy about. I was probably as intimidated about writing as I am with philosophy to this day. If anyone ever asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, my most common answer would definitely have been, I don't know. But far and away, my second most common answer would have been a writer. Not sure what that's all about. It sounds kind of cliche, but it's something that's always rung true to me. I just wanted to write things or create things. I wasn't an artist, but I was good with words. But more so even than the writing, what I wanted to do most was to think. I wanted to wonder. I wanted to string thoughts together and create something, whether it's on a page or in my own mind. That, to me, always made a lot of sense. If there's anything I could be or do in this world, I wanted to be someone who had big thoughts about things. And this is all before I knew what philosophy was or had even heard that word as far as I know. I was always really attracted to books and reading and writing, but I never knew what philosophy was. I didn't actually learn what philosophy was until late in high school. I was in grade 12. I was 17 years old when I took my first deep dive into philosophy. At that time, I was an obese teenager. I was socially awkward. I had nothing going for me academically, really. No future ambitions. All I really cared about when I was a teenager was playing video games. That's what dominated my life throughout my teens and into my early 20s. Discovering philosophy for me was a pretty mind-blowing revelation that would change the course of my life. But let's stop there and I just want to paint a little bit of a picture as to how I got there. So going back to my childhood before I discovered philosophy, as a kid I was always pretty active. I played multiple sports when I was younger. I played Soccer and baseball. And as a kid, I spent a lot of time outdoors just playing around in the grass or the dirt, climbing trees, riding bikes around town. You know, normal stuff kids did back then. I don't know if they do it so much now, though. I was also a monstrously excessive eater, and that did eventually catch up to me big time. I remember having these sort of overeating competitions, like see who could eat more kind of thing. I don't know how I got to thinking that was a good idea. Um, I remember on weekends challenging myself to see how many Eggo waffles I could eat in one sitting. So a whole pack of Eggo waffles, I think it was like, I can't remember if it was six or eight in a pack, but to me it was worthwhile to see like, ooh, how many waffles can I eat? Usually I'd be like decently full at four waffles, but I'd challenge myself to eat more. Sometimes I'd eat six waffles in a sitting. Sometimes, and this is particularly bad, I would sit down and eat eight waffles in one sitting. I'd have friends over for a sleepover, and I'd show them this trick that I could eat eight eggo waffles, and I'd feel terrible after, and I have no idea why I was challenging myself to do that. But throughout my childhood, there was this whole thing with excessive eating. At dinners, I would go back for seconds, sometimes thirds. I would overeat for every single meal. And this is something I thought was totally normal until way later. So I went through a lot of periods where I became sort of overweight and then would sort of flatten out and normalize a little bit or at least just not get fatter from where I was. I would spend more time exercising outdoors, like especially in the summers as kids we would spend a huge amount of time outdoors playing different sports, basketball, biking around town um some of those summers I did an insane amount of bike riding like sometimes with friends we'd do like a fifty kilometer bike ride and be gone all day and this is when we're 12, 13, 14 years old, doing 50 kilometers on our stupid little bikes. But then eventually, the outdoor activities would cease again and slow down, especially as we go into winter, and my appetite would stay the same. So as, as I was doing less physical activity, my appetite stayed the same, and I would balloon up even more, get fatter. Things got worse and worse as I got older. I continued doing less and less outdoor things as I got older, opting instead to stay inside and play video games more and more. I got really obsessed with video games. Like, this dominated my teen years and my early 20s. I was very competitive with video games. I played a lot online, semi-competitively. This was back before esports existed as a thing, really. I mean, it was just starting up back then, but it was still really early days and there wasn't much money in it at all or much chance for success. But that's what I wanted to do. There was no streaming at the time either, but I just wanted to play video games. I think if I had been a kid in this climate, that's 100% the direction I would have gone in. But I think I'm actually lucky that things worked out for me the way they did. I don't know that I would be living a happy life if my life was dominated by playing video games all day every day. Going into my teens, particularly starting high school, I started to get obese, And I mean like truly obese. I was in the neighborhood of 230 to 240 pounds. I was also a bit of a late bloomer, so I was both short and really wide. Middle school and high school were hard. Somehow I managed to stay fairly invisible so I didn't get it too bad, but there were some pretty intense spurts of bullying and harassment at different points. My hiding away at home behind my video games and bad eating habits got continually worse. By far my favorite part of life as a teenager was getting home, free to do what I wanted, free to play video games. By far the worst part was having to go to school. It's funny because in school I really loved learning, but I had a lot of terrible teachers. Middle school and high school, most teachers were pretty bad and they really turned me off the idea of learning in general. I did have one really great teacher in high school that helped me turn things around quite a bit, and this was an English and literature teacher. They got me really interested in literature, and I already loved writing, so it was the perfect thing for me. I think my saving grace in this time period was that I somehow managed to stick with a decent group of friends. I was really lucky here. I'd made two pretty good friends in elementary school, and we ended up mostly sticking together throughout middle and high school. When we got to high school, they were able to make friends with a larger friend group, and I I was able to leech onto that and tag along, and I just mostly hung out, stayed quiet, and flew under the radar. Even so, I struggled a lot in this time. Video games were my purpose for existing, all throughout high school. I definitely wouldn't call myself suicidal here, at all, but I definitely did wonder at times what it would be like to end my life. Probably things most teenagers think about at some point. And I remember having a thought from that time that's still ingrained in me to this day. And that thought goes like this. One day, I was sitting on the second floor of my parents' house, probably watching TV and pretending to do homework or something like that. I remember looking out the window and wondering to myself, what height would you need to be at to successfully jump from to die? And then I found myself wondering about the angle and how to land, like making sure you land headfirst to make it more likely you die rather than survive the fall and have serious injuries. So I really pictured what this would be like, and it kind of scared me. And then I had this thought. Before I do that, why don't I do something that I want to do, but I'm scared to do for some reason? Like, why don't I try talking to some girl that I like, and just let myself be embarrassed, if that's the way it's going to go? Surely that's not worse than no longer being alive, right? Or why don't I just try standing up to these bullies and not let them harass me and fight back? I mean, that's probably not going to go in my favor, but it's probably better for me to get in a fistfight at school than to end up dying, right? So maybe this was a bit of the philosophy shining through before I really got to the philosophy part. But we're about to get there now. Before grade 12, I got it into my head that there was a better life out there somehow. And that life would look like me playing video games or doing whatever I wanted. Whatever it was, it was a lot different than what I was doing now. And I knew my high school days would be behind me fairly soon. So, I'll set the stage a bit for what happens next. I am this obese and extremely socially awkward 16-year-old. Within probably the first week or two of grade 12... One of my good friends I'd known since elementary school was wearing an interesting t-shirt. So on the front of this t-shirt, it read in quotations, God is dead, attributed to Nietzsche. On the back of that t-shirt, it read in quotations, Nietzsche is dead, God. So obviously this shirt is intended for comedic effect, and I think everyone thought it was funny, I guess? But while I was pretend laughing about it, I was wondering in my head, what could that possibly mean apart from the comedic effect of it? Could there be something more behind that? I guess I was questioning in my own head, who is this Nietzsche person? I, I didn't know how to pronounce the name at all. I'm still struggling with it. Nietzsche. Did Jesus kill him? What does he mean God is dead? I had no idea what that meant. Did Jesus kill him? What did he mean God is dead? Later that day when I got home, I looked it up on the internet, and I found a site about existentialism. I really wish I could find that site again now. I have no recollection of what it was called or what was on there, but it was very, very rudimentary. None of what I was reading about existentialism made a ton of sense, until I tuned into a specific paragraph that was talking about the God is dead part. It explained that these existentialist philosophers weren't saying that God had died of mortal wounds or something. They were more saying God does not exist. That revelation blew my mind. Now, I know this website wasn't entirely accurate. Um, Atheism and existentialism do not go hand in hand. And when Nietzsche is saying God is dead, he's not saying God does not exist. He's more saying As a society, we're moving away from the belief in this divine creator, and something else has to take its place. But looking at this as a 16-year-old kid, it blew my mind. I don't think I had ever thought in my head, what if God does not exist? At least I hadn't thought of it seriously. My preconceived idea of what the world was and what life meant had been shattered by a t-shirt. Now, I was never a religious kid. Um, I had neighbors and one of my friends was religious and they went to church. I did a couple times over the years go to church with them or I'd go to a youth group because they would have some fun events going on. Um, But other than that, I was not religious at all. I took the existence of God for granted. I just assumed it must be the case. I remember as a younger kid, um, I had gone with the neighbors to church because they were like sort of babysitting us on a Sunday or some kind of thing. I remember asking my mom later, like, why don't we go to church? Like, shouldn't we go? My mom kind of said something to the effect of like, oh, well, we don't have time for that kind of thing. And it's not like we were atheists and didn't believe in a higher power. My parents certainly did and still do. It's just that there was never this necessity to go to church. But for me, maybe that was a little bit confusing because I looked at it and thought, well, okay, if if there's this God that exists, is it the Christian God? Is it some other God? I mean, what's really going on here? I never questioned to myself, what if there is no God? That wasn't a serious question I'd asked. I remember taking this to my religious friend and sort of questioning him about it and sort of having debates about God and religion and stuff like this. And this was a big turning point for me. I felt like for most of my life, the wool had been pulled over my eyes and I had been told or just taken for granted that there was this God and this afterlife and this heaven that existed out there never thinking to myself, maybe that's not the case. I remember at this point even getting a Bible to read through some of this stuff and figure it out for myself. I remember reading the book of Job, and or Job, however you say it, and being super confused, like it didn't even make sense. Why is this devout man being punished for God just to test his faith? His family's being murdered, all these bad things are happening to him just because God wants to show that he can do whatever he wants and still expects 100% loyalty. I remember bringing this up to my friend and questioning it, and he was sort of telling me that that was the point. The point of being a faithful person was that your faith should not be shook by anything, no matter how catastrophic. From what I remember, my friend had drew comparisons with what happened to Satan and his defiance of God and sort of warned me not to be influenced by the devil, but at that point I wanted nothing more. I wanted the devil to appear to me so I could find out for real whether or not there was a God. Prior to this t-shirt revelation, I remember laying in bed or sitting in my room and sort of praying to God for a better life. Praying for things to get better. Praying to not be obese. Even saying that I'll be forever devout if things improve. But realistically, that's not how faith works. But this t-shirt revelation that God does not exist... In my mind, it completely changed the course of my life. I went down this path of atheism. I found all of these online atheist communities and websites where I could learn more and, like, read views and discuss things with like-minded people. And through this revelation of Nietzsche, I started to look at other existentialist philosophers. I remember something I did in grade 12 was I went and got, from the library, I got Albert Camus' um, The Stranger and read that. I didn't really grasp it well at the time, but still it was something different, something unique, and something sort of mind-blowing. This eventually resulted in me taking on more personal responsibility and wanting to actually change and transform my life, and believing that that was within my power and not up to some divine power that I could just ask for a favor. Unfortunately, this wasn't much of a linear progression. Um, After some time delving into atheism and pursuing that sort of line of thought, I eventually fell back into playing video games, maybe even worse than before. In the winter after high school, when I was just doing some stupid manual labor job, I picked up World of Warcraft and started playing that obsessively. For about four years after I finished high school, I just worked a menial job and played video games in my spare time. Even though I was smart and good at writing and I could have done well academically, I really didn't apply myself. I spent more time playing video games and thinking and reading about atheism than actually doing schoolwork. I wasn't really motivated to go to university and I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I just sat around for a couple years, playing video games, continuing to be obese, and working a dead-end job. Luckily, I did pick things up. Um... After probably three years of obsessively playing that World of Warcraft game, I eventually just stopped. I started playing other video games, more of a hobby. I also started getting back into reading and sometimes writing, so I started actually getting into literature and picking up my old habits of learning and reading about philosophy, reading good books. I got it in my head that I should actually go to university, go to post-secondary. I didn't know what, but I just signed up for general introductory classes at a local college. And that's where I took an introductory philosophy course, and I was incredibly excited for that class. The teacher was pretty decent, and that class changed everything for me again. I became, again, totally obsessed with philosophy, although I had a competing interest because I also had a really good literature teacher, and I got super into literature and writing again as well. So in college, I split my time pretty equally between doing literature classes and philosophy classes. And then I eventually transferred to university as well. I eventually ended up graduating with a bachelor's degree, double majoring in English literature and philosophy. So after university, I jumped into the workforce with varying levels of success. I spent some time teaching English in China. I came back and did some odd jobs here in Canada. And then I eventually started working in government in the public sector where I spent the last five plus years. And that basically brings us to today. I feel things have kind of come full circle. For me, philosophy started with that Nietzsche t-shirt in high school. And today I feel like it's come full circle. Here I am starting this project, this podcast, this community that's based in philosophy. I feel like philosophy has done so much for me in my life and in my career. It wasn't easy at first. But once I found my groove, especially for me, once I started mixing the more technical side of things with the systems work and the deep thinking side of things with the business analyst work, that's when things really started clicking for me. And for me, since it did all start with Nietzsche, that's where I want to go next. Let's take a look at that actual God is dead quote from Nietzsche and see what he was actually talking about. So Nietzsche's first ever God is dead quote appears in his 1882 book titled The Joyous Science or also known as the gay science, depending on the translator. The translation I'm using is by R. Kevin Hill, and it is a fairly recent translation that I've really been enjoying reading. What I love about Nietzsche, and this probably goes back to my dual focus on literature and philosophy, is how literary he is. Everything he does is so well-written and so interesting. And the passages I want to look at from him are are some of those very literary passages that paint an amazing scene, an amazing picture of what he's actually trying to portray. So I'm going to look at passage number 125 from The Joyous Science, and this one's titled The Madman. So I'll start this off, and I quote, Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning light, ran to the marketplace, and shouted incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As there were many people standing together who did not believe in God, he caused much amusement. Is he lost? asked one. Did he wander off like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? And in this manner they shouted and laughed. So the picture Nietzsche is painting here is that there's this, what he's termed a madman, who's appeared in this town, and he's basically questioning these people in this town about where he can find God. And to the people in this town who, I guess, are of a secular mindset and do not believe in God, they think it's rather funny and they start shouting and laughing at this madman. But the madman himself isn't actually looking for God, he's trying to make a point. And that point will come across in what happens next. And I quote, Then the madman leapt into their midst, and looked at them with piercing eyes, and cried, Where did God go? I will tell you. We have killed him. You and I. We are his murderers. But how did we do this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the whole horizon? What did we do when we unchained this earth from its sun? Where is it heading? Where are we heading? So here, Nietzsche has this literary madman of his saying that, basically, we humanity, we killed God. We murdered him. And this is a brutal picture to paint. I mean, the way we would think about this in modern times isn't that we killed God, it's just that we stopped believing in him so much. But what Nietzsche is kind of saying here is that this is problematic. Like, What does this mean to us? And he ties it back to these physical things. Like, how did we drink up the sea by getting rid of God? How did we wipe away the horizon? How did we unchain the earth from the sun? Everything here has been thrown into chaos, thrown into limbo, because we no longer believe in this divine creator that we've been believing in for millennia, if not longer. So Nietzsche continues with the words of the madman. Are we not straying as through an infinite nothingness? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is night not falling evermore? Mustn't lanterns be lit in the morning? Do we hear nothing yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing yet of the divine putrefaction? For even gods putrefy. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we, the most murderous of all murderers, ever console ourselves? The holiest and mightiest thing that the world has ever known has bled to death under our knives. Who will wash this blood clean from our hands? With what water might we be purified? What lustrations, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we not become gods ourselves, if only to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and because of it, whoever is born after us belongs to a higher history than all history hitherto. So here, Nietzsche is really hammering home the point that we messed up. By usurping God from the throne, what's left? What is there for us? If we're no longer able to align our morality or our purpose in life with this divine creator, then what purpose do we have left? How do we have morality if it's not a divine morality? What are we gonna replace it with? Sure, it's great that we have this secular world that's coming up from nothing, but how is that gonna work? And Nietzsche really plays this up by using this madman as the messenger. And of course, it's a madman who's delivering this message. No sane person would think this way, No sane person thinks, oh, I no longer believe in God, what am I going to replace it with? I mean, even with myself, when I encountered the idea that God did not exist, I replaced belief in God with the belief in no God, with atheism. That became my guiding light. And I found community in atheism too. But for society as a whole, what kind of community can we find in this secular world? That's what Nietzsche is asking. He's not happy to do away with God. He's not gloating and saying, didn't you know God doesn't exist? He's saying, what are we going to do? I'll continue with the same passage because it's so good. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners. They too were silent and stared at him, baffled. At last he threw his lantern on the ground so that it broke into pieces and went out. I have come too early, he then said. This is not yet the right time. This tremendous event is still on its way and headed towards them word of it has not yet reached men's ears. Even after they are over and done with, thunder and lightning take time. The light of the stars take time, and deeds too take time, before they can be seen and heard. This deed is further away from them than the farthest star, and yet they have done it themselves. So again here, Nietzsche is making the point that we don't know what we've done, and we don't know what this means. This tremendous event has taken place, but nobody seems to recognize it. Nobody's listening. We are the ones who got rid of God, but we don't even realize what it is that we've done. I want to read another passage from Nietzsche's Joyous Science that paints this interesting picture in a sort of literary way. And this is passage number 124, titled In the Horizon of the Infinite. So this is the passage immediately preceding what we just read from Nietzsche. And I quote, We have left dry land and put out to sea. We have burned the bridge behind us. What is more, we have burned the land behind us. Well, little ship, look out. Beside you is the ocean. True, it doesn't always roar, and sometimes it is spread out like silk and gold in a gentle reverie. But there will be hours when you will realize that it is infinite, and that there is nothing more terrible than infinity. Oh, poor bird that felt free, and now beats against the bars of this cage. Alas, if homesickness should befall you, as if there had been more freedom there, when there is no longer any land. So this passage, Nietzsche's point, is that once we've departed from this belief in God, we've become secular, we've sort of burned our bridges, we've burned that land behind us. And now we're setting off on this ship, going off into eternity, sailing off into the great unknown, and we don't know what's coming next. We don't know what's out there that we can align ourselves by. We might think we were attaining more freedom by unchaining ourselves from this divine creator, but really we don't know. We might be less free than we were before. We might be more caged than ever. And how can this be? How could it be that we could be more caged, having left behind the belief in a divine creator and freed ourselves of those religious shackles? You'd think this would bring the most supreme feeling of freedom. I mean, for myself, when I first encountered the idea that God does not exist, I felt incredibly free. I stopped feeling like I was being watched by some divine being up in the clouds that was looking down and watching me and judging my every move. I felt free of those shackles and free to take responsibility for my own life. But that's not how everyone would feel in this situation. I was coming from a background of not being religious and not really having any purpose in life other than video games. But imagine if you were a society that was built on religion, a religious society. And suddenly that religion you'd always known proved to be false. And what if, as a devoutly religious person, you woke up one day and realized it was all a sham? That what you'd been living your entire life for, this idea of heaven, this idea of a divine creator, wasn't true. How would you align yourself? What would you think? What would your next actions be? What would be your purpose in life? So from here I want to jump over to an unexpected place to sort of get a feel for what this idea of God not existing would mean for people. And I'm going to look at Marie Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Woman*. So this is a book or an essay where Wollstonecraft makes the case that women aren't treated equally in society not because they don't have the faculties to be treated equal, but because there's this big disparity in the education system between men and women. Especially in her time, I mean, she's writing back in the 18th century, a century before Nietzsche even wrote The Joyous Science. And part of Wollstonecraft's argument is based on the idea of providence or divine creation. If it was the case that men and women should be treated as not equal intellectually, then God would not have created women with the same intellectual capacity that men also have. Wollstonecraft's idea here is that the main difference between men and women in her time is that men receive a proper education in reason, whereas women mainly receive an education in how to carry out domestic tasks of various kinds. So this creates a disparity naturally between the two sexes. You have Men who are well-educated and able to reason and pursue virtue and intellectual pursuits of all kinds. And then you have, on the other side, women who have never received that education, and they mainly fill their days with menial, simple pleasures. When Wollstonecraft is making this case, it rests on the idea that God has created men and women to be of equal intellectual footing, Wollstonecraft also argues that the purpose of life is to pursue wisdom and virtue and develop one's character. It's not to pass away the time pursuing simple pleasures. And the reason for this is that God did not create us to pursue simple pleasures. God created humans, both male and female, to pursue wisdom. When making this argument, Wollstonecraft also makes a concession here. Disparagingly, Wollstonecraft says that, and I quote, Supposing for a moment that the soul is not immortal, and that man was only created for the present scene, I think we would have reason to complain that love has grown so insipid and palled upon the senses. By this, she means that love has taken a back seat to other pursuits. She then goes on to say, and I quote, Let us eat, drink, and love, for tomorrow we die, would be in fact the language of reason, the morality of life. Wollstonecraft is saying that, If there is no immortal soul, and the purpose of life is not to pursue wisdom and virtue, and there's no divine creator, then we should go on some hedonistic binge. Let us eat, drink, and love, for tomorrow we die. She says that this would in fact be the language of reason, if it is the case that we're faced with a meaningless and short-lived life where the pursuit of wisdom and virtue aren't worthwhile. She then goes on to say, like, this can't possibly be the case. Of course, as an immortal soul, of course, the purpose of humans is to exercise their reason and virtue, and that for the women of her age, if we allow them to develop their reason and their intellect, that will give them the power to overcome their passions, to overcome the idea of these simple pleasures. She says further on, and I quote, Let the dignified pursuit of virtue and knowledge raise the mind above those emotions which would rather embitter then sweeten the cup of life when they are not restrained with due bonds. And here she's talking about the pursuit of pleasure. Circling back to Nietzsche, this is problematic. For thousands of years, we've had these mythologies, these stories about divine purpose. Philosophers have used a lot of mental energy and spilled a lot of ink debating and thinking about whether it's better to pursue pleasure for its own sake or whether the purposeful life is the life of the pursuit of wisdom. So what if we take a couple steps back here and analyze this? Nietzsche is saying that without God, what is going to give our lives meaning? What are we going to replace belief with if it's not belief in a divine creator? And Mary Wollstonecraft, in this Vindication for the Rights of Woman, she's saying, what's the point of pursuing reason, of pursuing wisdom, of pursuing virtue? Wouldn't it be wiser for us to get the most out of life, the most enjoyment, the most pleasure we can out of life while we're here? than to try to engage in these intellectual pursuits that might not get us anywhere? And let's think about the modern age too, because we're in a hyper-secular age now. Of course there's still a lot of religion out there, a lot of religious people. But what have we replaced religion with in the developed western countries? Capitalism? Consumerism? I think we've replaced the belief in God with the belief in capitalism and consumerism. Where is the motivation to pursue wisdom In this system where the ultimate goal is to pursue more wealth and status in this capitalist system of ours. We don't reward people for being wise or having wise thoughts. I mean look at the online culture wars. We reward people for falling in line, for not thinking critically, for not asking questions. And where does this leave us metaphysically? If God didn't create the world, who did? It wasn't us. Why are we here? How did we get here? When we don't have theology to look to for purpose, we've started looking to science instead. That's what we've replaced it with. Science and capitalism. Discovery and money. Knowledge and wealth. It's a different kind of knowledge. A different kind of thing. Sure, we can have knowledge of how the universe works. We can have knowledge of the Big Bang being the start of it all. We can have knowledge of how the universe might evolve over the next however many billion years. We can have theories about whether it's going to end in a big freeze trillions of years from now or end in a big crunch billions of years from now, but we just don't know either way. And even if we did figure that out, we'd probably have more questions. If it ends in a big freeze, does that mean that's it? Everything comes to an end? Or are there multiverses out there? If it ends in a big crunch, does that mean the universe is going to restart from nothing and have another big bang and things sort of continue in this sort of never-ending cycle? And if that is the case, what does that mean for us who exist in this universe as just tiny blips in time? We're not even a footnote in the history of the universe at this point. In my view, Nietzsche is ultimately right here. We've attained secularism, but what have we replaced it with? What transcendent pursuits do we have? Or are we just coming down to material pursuits like wealth and success? And if that's the case, are we just cogs in this economic wheel that keeps on turning, keeps on pumping out material goods and giving us some sort of menial pleasure whenever we get the chance for it and in a way we've come back to what wollstonecraft was worried about if there proves to be no such thing as an immortal soul we're no longer a wise society people do not pursue wisdom for its own sake anymore people don't pursue virtue taking some sort of scientific or pseudo-scientific attitude everyone just wants to be right everyone wants to prove their side everyone wants to have evidence for why they're right and their opponents are wrong But what kind of an attitude is that in life? Who wants to be right all the time? I, for one, prefer to be surprised. But to be surprised, we have to be open-minded. And To be open-minded, that means, well, maybe we need to study philosophy. Through philosophy, there is a rich metaphysics that we can sort of investigate here. We can look at the myths of the past and also the science of the present to sort of piece together some picture to make sense to our eight brains. And maybe it's the case that there is no reality to grasp here. Maybe we're living in a simulation. And even if that is the case, does that mean life is meaningless? If it turns out to be true that we're living in a simulation, just one of infinite numbers of simulations, does that mean we can't still pursue happiness or fulfillment in our lives? So I think this podcast of mine has gone a bit off the rails on the first inaugural episode of Bad Philosopher. And I think I've really lived up to that name, too. I'm really portraying that bad philosopher vibe right now. But I do want to end it on a bit of a high note, if possible. So I'm hoping everyone's enjoyed the wild ride so far, going from um, Friedrich Nietzsche to Marie Wollstonecraft. I want to jump back a little bit further to ancient land and look at the Bhagavad Gita. So the Bhagavad Gita is an ancient Hindu text. It's part of an epic called the Mahabharata which is a very lengthy Hindu text that goes into a lot of the mythology. So for Hinduism, this is their Iliad or their Odyssey. The Bhagavad Gita is basically a dialogue between this warrior prince Arjuna and um, this avatar of Lord Vishnu. So an avatar of the supreme being Vishnu incarnated as Krishna, this sort of guide of Arjuna. And the Bhagavad Gita details this dialogue between the two of them, Arjuna and Krishna, speaking about this epic battle that's about to come and how to go about um, conducting oneself. Arjuna is very reluctant to go into battle and slaughter all of these people. A lot of them are his relatives. He doesn't want to have to do that. And Krishna basically spends the text sort of telling him why this is ethical and necessary for him to do. So I'm going to dive into Eknath Iswaran's translation of the Bhagavad Gita. And I'm looking at chapter 11 now, titled The Cosmic Vision. So at this point, Krishna has sort of explained to Arjuna why it's his ethical duty to go forward with this great battle and slaughter all of these people. And Arjuna kind of says, thank you, like, thank you for showing me this. My delusion is gone. I now know what I need to do. He then asks if Krishna will reveal his immortal self to Arjuna. So Arjuna wants to see the Lord manifested in this Krishna, um, not as an avatar, but as the supreme self that this Vishnu divine being really is, if that makes sense. So I'm going to pick up with Krishna when Krishna goes to reveal um, their true self, so the divine being, Vishnu. And this is what Krishna says to Arjuna. Behold, Arjuna, A million divine forms, with an infinite variety of color and shape. Behold, the gods of the natural world, and many more wonders never revealed before. Behold, the entire cosmos turning within my body, and the other things you desire to see. But these things cannot be seen with your physical eyes. Therefore, I give you spiritual vision to perceive my majestic power. So this is where Krishna imparts on Arjuna the ability with this divine power of his, this ability to see Krishna as the embodied Lord Vishnu, the divine being. The narrator here says, there within the body of the god of gods, Arjuna saw all the manifold forms of the universe united as one. And this is where Arjuna gets to speak. He sort of describes what he's seeing, this divine being. He says, Arjuna says, and I quote, You are the supreme changeless reality, the one thing to be known. You are the refuge of all creation, the immortal spirit, the eternal guardian of the eternal dharma. And the dharma is sort of like the life force or the the unseen force behind reality as we know it. And I continue with Arjuna. You are without beginning, middle, or end. You touch everything with your infinite power. The sun and moon are your eyes, and your mouth is fire. Your radiance warms the cosmos. So, Arjuna sort of continues on with this typical praise, um, and then starts to kind of see more and more as time goes on, as he continues looking at this divine being, looking into this abyss. Uh, Arjuna sees more of the true nature of this Vishnu divine being. So with Vishnu, he begins to see the fate of the mortals that he's about to face on the battlefield. He sees the warriors and the fighters and the kings and basically sees a vision of what's about to happen, but in a very metaphorical way. So what Arjuna sees, and I quote, I see our warriors and all the kings who are here to fight. All are rushing into your awful jaws. I see some of them crushed by your teeth. As rivers flow into the ocean, all the warriors of this world are passing into your fiery jaws. All creatures rush into their destruction like moths into a flame. You lap the worlds into your burning mouths and swallow them. Filled with your terrible radiance, O Vishnu, the whole of creation bursts into flames. So here's where Arjuna is kind of saying, like, "This this is too much. He's been granted this divine be- this divine vision to see this all-powerful being, and he's having a tough time taking it in. Arjuna continues, Tell me who you are, O Lord of terrible form. I bow before you, have mercy. I want to know who you are, you who existed before all creation. Your nature and workings confound me. So that's how Arjuna asks. He wants clear- He wants to know, what is this that I'm looking at? What is your true nature? He can't understand what he's perceiving because it's beyond his mortal capability to understand. Krishna responds to Arjuna, and I quote, I am time, the destroyer of all. I have come to consume the world. Even without your participation, all of the warriors gathered here will die. Therefore arise, Arjuna, conquer your enemies and enjoy the glory of sovereignty. I have already slain all these warriors. You will only be my instrument. Kill those whom I have killed. Do not hesitate. Fight in this battle and you will conquer your enemies. Arjuna accepts this task. He accepts this assignment to him and he responds to Krishna. You are the first among the gods, the timeless spirit, the resting place of all beings. You are the knower and the thing which is known. You are the final home. With your infinite form, you pervade the cosmos. So, why did I just jump into the Bhagavad Gita after talking about Nietzsche and secularism and the death of God and the lack of purpose and Maurice Wollstonecraft's lamentation at the pursuits of pleasure? The Bhagavad Gita is an allegory, it's a poem. It's firmly rooted in this divine belief that Hinduism has about these higher powers, these higher beings. But it's also a story about the cosmos itself and the nature of reality. Krishna says at one point in response to Arjuna, I am time, the destroyer of all. I have come to consume the world. That is a metaphysics that is true regardless of your belief. You don't have to be a Hindu to believe what Krishna is relaying as an avatar of the supreme being of the cosmos, the creator of all, the one who existed before all creation. Krishna is clearly saying, I am time. Time consumes all. Time is the death of all beings. Whether you kill them on the battlefield now or not, all beings are going to die in time. I think this says a lot about the possibility of metaphysics in this secular world of ours. Sure, we've lost religion, we don't have this divine creator, we've shrunk away from theology, we don't believe in these biblical scriptures or these other religious texts anymore, we're living a more secular life in our modern world, and we're sort of replacing those beliefs with other theories, other ideas. We have astrophysics, talking about the Big Bang, the Big Crunch, the Big Freeze, We have more modern theories like simulation theory talking about how maybe all of our reality is actually a computer simulation. Both of those theories could be true. We don't know. The loss of faith is catastrophic for society as a whole in some ways. I mean, it means we no longer have this pre-made, out-of-the-box purpose in life to aim for. But what it does mean is that we have to be the ones to create meaning for ourselves. And to me, that's the purpose and pursuit of philosophy. It's the pursuit of wisdom, of creating meaning, of defining what meaning means to you, of defining our own purpose, building our own lives how we want to live them. As a teenager, something as innocuous as the idea that God did not exist and wasn't real freed me from my pre-made shackles, freed me from being set in these ways that I was set in. It wasn't a linear thing, but I eventually changed my life around and Comparing my life today compared to what it was back then when I had that t-shirt revelation that god is dead, it's night and day. And I owe that to philosophy. Without a doubt, philosophy got me to where I am today. And I wish I could find that old existentialism site and reread that or find out what it even was that got me hooked on this on this path in the first place. It's long gone unfortunately. But I sincerely hope that through Bad Philosopher, through creating this podcast, through creating this content, and creating this community, that I can have a similar impact on others eventually, at some point in the future. Philosophy changed the course of my life, and I know it can help others as well. That is my biggest hope of this project. To everyone still listening, thank you so much for still being here. This has been the first ever Bad Philosopher podcast, and I hope there's many more to come. Thank you.